How was your birthday? <laughs> it was fun. It was a good day. Uh, originally, my husband was going to be out of town. And so he had ordered all these surprises to happen Aww. at my house. So I got flowers. And then I woke up on Saturday morning and I went outside because I was going to go to the gym. And there was this giant yard sign, <laughs> which we'll post to our Instagram. You can see what it is. Giant yard sign that says, happy birthday, Stephanie which I thought were kind of reserved for, you know, children. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> we're never too old. I was like, okay, now not only does everyone know it's my birthday, but now they know my full name and when my birthday <laughs> is. <laughs> so I, I got over the embarrassment of that. I was like, this is a celebration. <laughs> I made it through one more year. That's right. Yes. It's my Gosh darn birthday. That's right. <laughs> Welcome to the Musician Centric Podcast. We are two freelance violists living and laughing our way through conversations that explore what it means to be a professional musician in today's world. I'm Steph. And I'm Liz. And we're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. My daughter's got um, in a youth orchestra out here and so went to her concert. And that was on your birthday too? That was on my Aww, birthday. Oh, was that a nice birthday present too? Yeah. I mean, it was a youth orchestra concert. Was, but your daughter playing. Fine. But she played yeah. and she happens to be principal of her section. So wow, exciting. That is exciting. I mean, yeah. somehow I'm not surprised. But Well, you know, it's funny when you have kids and I'm sure everyone who has children out there will also have this opinion. But when you have kids, it becomes very stark what your priorities are and what your kids' priorities are do not necessarily match up. Yeah. It's just a realization that you have to come to that my child, even though they came like literally from me, are they are not me. They are their own distinct human being. And that seems obvious to say, but you know, you think of your childhood and what you wanted in your childhood, and that's not necessarily what your kid's going to want. Right. So, right. Or your students, for people who are teachers. I, I had this conversation with several people like, we who made a career out of music are like the 5%. Of people who took private lessons. So your teacher, you your expectation for yourself as a student and the way that you came prepared to lessons was probably not the way the majority of people came to lessons, right? Uh, yeah, or the mo internal <laughs> motivation is different for sure. Yes, right. Yes, yes. I can't say I was so ever prepared for lessons, but <laughs> but my goal was to just keep playing music all the time. But no, that's not every kid's endeavor. That's 100% true. And honestly, teaching becomes so much more freeing when you just recognize that each one of them has their own goals, right? Like, right. if you're if you have a kid who's just like, I just want to do well in my school orchestra, then you could say, okay, then I'll coach you to do that. That's your goal. That's what you want to do. And and learning this music is going to help you become a more well-rounded human being. And that is at the core of teaching. Like it's not about making the best musicians. It's about making the best humans. And that's what music does. So I love that. But I'm curious to know, I wanted to ask if it's okay. So your daughter is principal of the orchestra. So she obviously plays well, and she obviously does a good enough job playing to be 
chosen to be principal of the orchestra. How is it that you notice your goals are different or like her approach to it is different from your own experience, like personal experience? I think just that, well, we've outright had a conversation about it. Did you? Yeah. (laughs) I'm curious. Um, She has no motivation to practice or like for auditions or seating auditions this last round. This is the first orchestra that she's actually had to do seating auditions. So you audition to get in and then there's seating auditions to determine who becomes, you know, where you sit in the section. It was not a priority for her at mm-hmm. all to practice for the seating audition, mm-hmm. you know, then submit a quality video video. It was very last minute and it made me so anxious. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but this is a going theme with me and my kids around schoolwork. I know it's something that is very triggering for me because I was always, you had to have your homework done. I put that pressure on myself. I couldn't, the worst feeling to me was was showing up at my lesson or at school without my homework done or without me having practiced. Sure. Yeah. So that's just a very triggering thing for me. But anyway, yeah. she has doesn't have the same motivation to do that. She did it very last minute and it was fine. Obviously it was fine. But it, I really have to talk myself through those those differences. She is not you. Yeah. It's okay. It's really It's really not. doesn't matter. That, matter. that dynamic is so fascinating because it, it really, I know we had this funny conversation together when we were out to dinner with a friend not that long ago about like the parent-kid dynamic and letting certain things happen or if you're really neat versus the kid is really messy or vice versa, whatever it is. And it's interesting too, because I'm curious to see if at some point the lesson is learned for them through experience, you know, like in this case, she didn't suffer any negative consequences from putting things off. So, and that was true for me for a long time. Uh And then ultimately, you know, the struggle comes when there's something you really, really, really want and you've, you haven't put yourself in a position to be able to be prepared and be ready and and do everything you can to have that thing. And then you don't get it. And Mm -hmm. so that'll be an interesting moment for you as a parent too, Mm -hmm. I imagine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's cool. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you got to go to her concert on your birthday. Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. And you made a cake that looked incredible. Yes, because I can't not make my own cake. I can't leave it to chance that <laughs> yes. someone will, you know, buy me a cake and I'll be like, oh, I could have made a much better cake. Right? And I enjoy the process. So that's not, it's not a hardship for me to make my own cake. Does it, does it feel it. a little like a gift for you to make the time to like do it? Yeah, I just really enjoy the, yeah. I enjoy the process. I love it. So relaxing yeah. otherwise. I was just going to say this whole conversation of about you know doing what what you feel your strengths are and guiding your kids into doing and your students into pursuing their strengths. I had a conversation with um with a cashier this morning because I was at the grocery store. It's the week before we're recording this, the week before Thanksgiving yep. and it's Monday. <laughs> and I cannot I refuse to go to the grocery store any more than once on the week of Thanksgiving. Love it. And I I won't go past Monday. But anyway, I was talking with this cashier and he is a student student down in Richmond studying ASL. Ah. And he said he originally started in mechanical engineering or something because he likes to do things with his hands. And he thought that was going to be what he pursued, but he just, it didn't speak to him. Mm. And so he switched and because he wants to help people. Yeah. And, you know, interact with people and connect with people. And so I just found that I thought it was a really a great time to realize that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it made me think about our um, Joy Loves Company group that we're going to be starting very, very soon. Yes. And the book that we're using is that Creative Success Now, which is all about finding the best use of your skills and artistry. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so first of all, for those of you listening to this in real time or right as we're releasing the episode, we had our first meeting with the group, but it's not too late to come together and join with us. All you have to do is sign up on our Patreon at the $5 a month level, order the book and you can jump in. We're very laid back about the structure of our of our group. So I don't think you'd have to feel like you'd miss too much if you were jumping in you know, a week or two later than we start. So that's important to say. But the other thing I, I wanted to say was I went down this rabbit hole and I don't know if you've done it yet, but when we talked with Astrid on the interview a few weeks back, we learned that she has these strengths tests that she uses. And she has this free one online that she really likes to recommend to her students called the high five test. And it's really straightforward. And I just, I sent it to a bunch of people and I was like, oh, do this, do this. And it was fascinating to me that of all of the people like sort of in my inner collaborative circle that have shared their results with me so far, each one of us has a couple of things in common and then there's things that are different. And so Uh it was really cool because it was like, oh, okay, this is actually really useful information because you know that then, you know, we all connect in this sort of way, like Philomath was one of the things that came up for everyone so far that I have asked to take it and has taken it. And Philomath is the concept of lifelong learning. Like it's just this person who always is seeking to learn. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that I would be connected with a lot of people that have that as a strength. I would guess most of the people, like I'm sure that's going to come up for you too. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. so um, it was really interesting to see the connection. But then it was also, oh, okay, there's these other little facets of this person's personality. And when we get to when we get into a conversation about a certain type of thing, this is why that dynamic happens the way it does, because they're seeing it from this perspective, and I'm seeing it from this perspective. And it was actually really cool. So yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah. So okay, I'll do mine. I promise I'll do mine. And everyone who's in the group is going to do it. But if you're not able to join us, please do the high five test and tag us on Instagram and let us know what your strengths are. I'm really interested to know what overlaps amongst our listeners. Yeah, you know, they're totally baiting me too, because they give you the five for free and they describe them. But then there's like a whole comprehensive thing that goes into all the rest of the strengths and it labels them out for you, orders them. And I'm like, man, do I just pay like the 20 bucks or whatever to find out? The whole thing I gotta watch. Stay strong. (laughs) Well, you only need like the five, the top five. Well, I'd love to know the other ones for how much you know, teamwork is just like a massive part of my work life, right? And I just would Uh love to know the other ones so I can be like, okay, I think this person probably leans in this direction. And that would be a good skill to have like on a team. So it's interesting. Yeah, I'm super interested. So that'll I'm just I I think it's such a magical idea to find like the Goldilocks career for yourself. You know, (laughs) the thing that's the thing that's just so perfect, and it may not be playing in orchestra, it may not be teaching 100% of the time, but I'm just, I, I really. I think everybody just wants to be feel seen and gotten. And I think that's why personality tests are so popular, or these types of tests. Ooh, tell me more about me. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> get me, get me. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. The more we understand ourselves, the more we understand how we show up in the world, the better we show up in the world. So it's hard to find a good segue for the conversation that we had with this incredible, incredible guest that we're featuring on this episode. Jared Tate, who is just a phenomenal human being. He's a composer. He's a musician. Where do you even begin with this conversation? Well, it sounds like his has been a journey of self-discovery as well. Yes. Really coming to respect and 
embrace his Chickasaw roots. Yeah. He talks about that, which is really interesting. I mean, I gather that anyone who's from different ethnicities may feel conflicted at times. Like, who am I really? What am I really? And I just, his journey has been really beautiful. And it being his, a very big part of his identity and path. Yeah. And also this hybrid, because he spoke about his family's background, that he has this also deep-seated root in classical music. And so this like identity of his to represent his culture in the classical world. And that was a really interesting facet of the conversation too, was that idea that representation includes using other forms and other avenues to get your message out. He talked about filmmaking and he talked about all these other ways that are not traditional for their heritage and, you know, didn't come from their heritage, but they are able to use them to speak their stories. And that was really fascinating too. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before. Mm -hmm. But yeah, talk about somebody who used their strengths and molded their career to match them. Yeah. I really felt like I said this to you and I said this to other people. I felt when we were in that conversation that he spoke so much wisdom. He had so many insights. It was almost just like trying to grab one and like be like, okay, let's talk about that for a second. Like it was, it was amazing. And I know everyone who listens is going to feel the same way. Also, there was something that really stuck with me and has continued to stick with me is this idea that because I think it's fair to say that, I mean, we're talking a little bit about our individual experiences of, you know, identity and understanding more about ourselves, how we show up in the world, self-love, self-compassion, all that stuff. I think we're in a real difficult period of transition, not just as individuals, but as a culture in general. And we've been this way for a long time now. It's been, you know, years of identity struggle as humanity. And it was just really interesting to hear him speak very, I don't know, just peacefully about this idea that we are not, this is not the first time that humanity has faced these moments of real crisis of identity and real challenges. And I think the idea that we have all of our, you know, ancestors behind us having gone through arguably worse <laughs> puts things into perspective sometimes. It can be a source of comfort in a way. Yeah. And just recognizing that, you know, as we head into 2024 and who knows every year, there's all these funny memes that pop up in the new year. That's like, we thought last year was the worst year. <laughs> <laughs> maybe 2024, maybe you'll be kinder. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, one can hope. But um, we are, you know, very gratefully wrapping up our 2023 interviews with this conversation with Jared and taking a little break for the holiday season on those. We're going to have some Mozarts for you, but then we'll be back in the new year with a whole bunch of other great conversations. And we hope you'll stick with us. And as always, share it with a friend if you love it. We have some sticker ambassadors. If you want to be a sticker ambassador, let us know. Yay. Yes. We will send you stickers so you can proselytize on our behalf. <laughs> <laughs> More stickers out there, the better, right? <laughs> yes, yes. But in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Jared Tate. Located in a historic mansion in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you might get the impression that the team at Potter Violins are as formal as the breathtaking building that they work in. But when you go inside, instead you'll find the most relatable, skilled, and friendly staff. Yes, the people at Potter's are what really make it a special place. I love visiting because I know that whoever I work with is not going to make me feel like I'm crazy. 
or just being picky. They're kind of like your favorite bartender. They're great listeners who give you what you need without judgment. <laughs> yes, their technicians are not only super talented, creative, and resourceful, they take the time to collaborate with you so that the process of getting your instrument at its best really feels like a partnership. So if you're in the area, definitely stop by and introduce yourself to Chris, Rob, Kimberly, Derek, Jim, Melissa, and the whole team, or visit pottervioilins.com to find what you need online. It's so fitting then that their shop is in this beautiful old house because the staff at Potter's really makes it feel like home. Today's guest, Jared Tate, is a classical composer, citizen of the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma, and is dedicated to the development of American Indian classical composition. The Washington Post selected him as one of their 22 for 22 composers and performers to watch this year, and raved about his rare ability to effectively infuse classical music with American Indian nationalism. Jared was appointed a 2022 Chickasaw Hall of Fame inductee, a 2021 cultural ambassador for the U.S. Department of State and is a governor-appointed creativity ambassador for the state of Oklahoma. And he's an Emmy winner, too, for his work on the educational documentary, The Science of Composing. And his music was featured on the HBO series Westworld. So not only is he a sought-after composer, but I read that you did a stint with the Broadway tours of Les Mis and Miss Saigon. So Mm -hmm. you know what it's like to be a freelancer (laughs) in this world, too. Mm -hmm. So you've done it all. We're so glad that you've made time to chat with us. It is my honor to welcome you to the Musician Centric Podcast. Welcome. So glad to have Absolutely. you. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Jared Impachon Chaha Tate, and I am a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma, and I am a professional classical composer. And I'm very, very honored to be on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me. That was lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much. You bet. So we are obviously, we're both familiar with your work. I've performed your string quartet. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to go see someone perform your string quartet amongst other (laughs) other things tomorrow night. We're very excited. I was just messaging with Ellen and she said that you guys are like proudly donning the So Hot Right Now t-shirts in your (laughs) I'll tell you, I just, I mean, I love their enthusiasm. I mean, of course, it's this, it, it is definitely good for my ego to have something like that. Um, <laughs> my, my, my parents bought shirts, which is really cool. I know. And, um, so cute. But, you know, I'll tell you, that is a really good example of what I think of as very, very robust and energetic entrepreneurship. Absolutely. And I'm very proud of them for that because yeah. I, I think it's a good example. I think it's a really good role model for the kinds of ways that we should feel comfortable with promoting ourselves and what we do because I mean they believe in what they're doing. Yes. They're very, very excited and, and very thrilled and happy and they have lots of joy in, in all of their projects. And I think that's really, really great that they're showing that enthusiasm and not being shy about it whatsoever. Yes. So you know, I mean there's you, you know, we have a history of kind of getting down on ourselves for self-promotion or for some reason there's a negative stigma on selling yourself. And I don't understand. I've never understood that really because prosperity is a good thing for all human beings. We should want prosperity for ourselves and we should wish prosperity for other people around us. And so we need to be in the 
game. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I really, really appreciate their healthy enthusiasm and their, you know, their Gen Zers, basically. I'm not sure they're even millennials. And so I'm just really grateful for that, that type of energy. And I'm very, very supportive of that. Yeah. I think they'll appreciate you calling them Gen Zers. I think we're, sure. we're a little older than that. Everybody Almost. looks like we're a Gen Zer to me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's really true. And I think, I mean, maybe this is something that has come out. Steph and I talk about this too. It's been sort of a positive byproduct of social media. We talk a lot, a lot about the negative byproducts of social media, but this positive concept that's like, you get to see all of these other people out there expressing themselves whatever that looks like. And it somehow translates into permission slip for somebody else to say, okay, maybe I could just like say the thing I want to say and it's not a big yeah. deal. And Or I have something I want to share. And for, we'll just mention Rosette is the name of the group, but they're great with that. They have really done a good job of creating this unique platform for sharing great music. And it was just so exciting to see that this full concert of your music is going to be performed and and Steph and I are going to be in town so we can see it tomorrow. So that's I'm, great. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. I'm very flattered by this. It's really, I'm very grateful for all of that. Yeah. It's really cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're really curious about you personally. So we're both classically trained musicians mm-hmm. and, you know, we went through the traditional pathways. We're curious how you came into classical music. What inspired you to take this path mm-hmm. and then eventually become a composer? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, of course, I have my life story and my my story begins with my parents, naturally. And so my father, Charles, is Chickasaw Indian from Oklahoma. And dad was born and raised in Ardmore, which is right in the heart of the Chickasaw Nation in South Central Oklahoma here. And my father graduated um, University of Oklahoma Law School with his Juris Doctor and became a tribal attorney and judge, special district judge. And one thing that's really important about my dad is that he is author to our current Chickasaw Constitution. And for those of you who may not be familiar with Indian wow. country law, um, all uh, 500 37 tribes in the United States has our own constitutions that run in tandem with the United States Constitution. So we are all citizens of our tribe. So I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, and I'm also mm-hmm. a citizen of the United States of America. And this is a very, very unique uh, place in the world that has this. And so I say all that because my father is author to our current constitution that was ratified in 1983. We've had constitutions since 1865, and they've gone through different iterations. But also with my dad's background, I grew up with a very, very robust and colorful knowledge of American Indian history, politics, and law. And so I've known people from all kinds of different tribes since a very young age and been exposed to all kinds of tribal cultures and governments for a very long time. And I'm very grateful for that. But my dad is also a phenomenally trained classical pianist and baritone. Wow. And he's where I get my voice. And I'm very I was going to say, there's a baritone in there. <laughs> And, you know, so my dad's 83. And so we're we're still, we're very, very close. In fact, we just both performed my sister's entire wedding and he sings, he canters and he sings weddings all the time still. And so my, my father and I uh, speak Indian law and opera in the same sentence all of the time. It's really, really fortunate to have my dad as my buddy like that. And great story. My dad also played accordion as a teenager and he would gig restaurants singing Italian, playing accordion. And so it was, you know, you see this Chickasaw kid doing all that in Ardmore, Oklahoma. That so, is amazing. Only, <laughs> only in America can you so find something like under- that. Yeah, only in America. That's it. Oh my gosh. Pretty cool. Have you, I'm sure you watched a lot of work accordion, but uh, yeah, I'm, just, well, yes. I'm always impressed with an accordion. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. He he played that for his for me when I was a kid. So I grew up with dad playing classic playing and singing classical repertoire in the house as well. And so my mother Patricia was from Nebraska and mom was Manx Irish. So I am Manx and Chickasaw. And my mother uh, was a professional choreographer and dancer. And she also graduated OU School of Music and studied with Yvonne Sh- uh, Shoto and Mikhail uh, Terikov. And so my parents met in the theater. And so I grew up as a total theater brat. Um, I have saturated in a very specifically in American theater and dance. And so a lot of my early artistic heroes were female choreographers like Isadora Duncan and Martha Graham, Ruth Sit Dennis and Ted Sean and Agnes DeMille. Uh, and then later on, you know, just all the moderns like Merce Cunningham and Alvin Ailey, Jerome Robbins, Bob Fosse, those kinds of folks were yeah. you know, in my younger years. And so with all of the dance exposure that I have, I grew up with a lot of modern music, a lot of American modern music, but also my mom choreographed a lot of major ballets. And so I grew up with some of the finest orchestrations ever composed by Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Tchaikovsky and Ravel mm-hmm. and Debussy and, you know, just stuff like that. I was doing all that when I was a kid. And so I was just completely exposed wow. to those amazing orchestrations. Yeah. So my dad started me on the piano. And then when I started piano lessons at uh, about eight and a half, about three months in, I had announced to my family that I was to be a concert pianist. I was in like Flynn, no problems. And so, that, so that's how I grew up as studying piano. And I went to Northwestern as a piano performance major and then the Cleveland Institute of Music. And during my senior year at Northwestern, my mom was going to be doing a, a new ballet. She taught at the University of Wyoming for 25 years. And she had just done a ballet called The Lynching of Cattle. Kate about Ella Watson, who was the first and only woman hanged in in Wyoming for cattle rustling. And so she did something that was very historically relevant to the area. And then she wanted to do another ballet based on American Indian stories from the Northern Plains and Rockies. And she created this entire architecture and consulted with a lot of her native colleagues in the state of Wyoming about stories that that she could use, that that kind of thing. And, And so then she came to me and said, well, you're my Chickasaw pianist kid. You can compose the score. And I said, Had you ever thought about comp- composing before that? No, no. Never. I said no. I told her absolutely oh. not. That was absolutely ridiculous. And <laughs> I couldn't get it out of my head. I started composing it kind of on, in secret. And I came to her with some music and she liked it. And we went ahead and, and moved forward with, with the gig. But no, I had not thought of composing before. And it was really, I mean, first of all, I grew up in ballet. So I had an enormous amount of artistic pressure on my shoulders. Mm. But also, I knew all of our great American Indian visual artists and composers and choreographers and authors. And so I'm looking at all this canon from Indian country and from mm. classical country. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> so that, that was pretty overwhelming. But in a really beautiful and innocent way, my mother was asking me to be all of who I am at the same time. And I just started doing this. And as I was talking to lots of colleagues, everybody, everybody from Indian country and from the classical field were saying, you got to do this. So I did. So we premiered the ballet um, entitled Winter Moons, which is actually on Spotify. You can hear them. I've listened. I saw it. <laughs> oh, okay. and, and, the, and the video with my mom's choreography is up on my YouTube channel oh, with cool. the Colorado Ballet okay. performing. Oh, and um, so Rodney Grant, the narrator of, of Winter Moons, he's an Omaha guy. And he was one of the famous actors from Dances with Wolves. He played that character, Wind in His Hair, who had hair down to his ankles. Oh, yeah. was like gorgeous. And so he came in to do the narration. It was right after that movie had come out. And so he was just on me, like just hammering me. You've got to do this. You've got to be a native classical composer. 
composer. This is important, blah, blah. And so I was like, all right. So he was just really, really super passionate. So Rodney Grant, I'm really grateful for him to be in my life. We're still friends and he's Aww. just wonderful. And he's really responsible for that. So when I finished the ballet, um, I had left school to come and premiere the ballet with mom. And then I went back and I added composition to my degree at the Cleveland Institute. And that's when I had announced to my family that I was to be a Chickasaw classical composer. It's so interesting. There's a couple things I was thinking about. One is, you know, we all know that Brahms famously couldn't get his head around the idea of composing something better than Beethoven. And he, and, <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and it, it weighed him down so much that he didn't compose a symphony until he was old, right? Like mm -hmm. he waited a and very, very long forever. time. And he was, yes. he was just so mm -hmm. overcome by the weight of that. But it, I've never thought about the fact that every composer must have some element of experience that's like, wait, 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 I'm going to try to do this thing that all these other people have done, that there's a weight there and the freedom that you received just from somebody saying, no, 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 but but it's your voice mm -hmm. <laughs> that I'm interested yeah. in hearing. Yeah. Don't worry about the rest of that. I mean, all of that informs us, but really, how do we create anything new if we don't just rely on the fact that our voice is its own unique entity? Yeah, to I, I totally agree. And you know, every artist feel this, feels this in every field. You feel this way when you're a parent. It's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> how do I do this? Everybody's done it. Like, it's, I mean, it's the same thing with anybody who's growing in their lives and trying to achieve anything. You know, there's people that come before us that, that create a standard. And so we have all kinds of challenges and choices about how we embrace those standards and how we do make our own voice through all of that. Because, I mean, living in of itself is coming from a tradition of life. And so, you know, here it is. We're born in all this. So yeah, I completely agree. I was feeling all of that at the same time. And at the same time, I also felt very passionate about it. I felt driven. I really did. I feel, really felt very compelled and attracted to the idea. And my personal struggles also were, you know, I was talking to my aunt, my dad's sister, Anne, and I said, Anne, I said, I'm struggling because I just don't know how relevant what I do is going to be to Indian country, you know? Mm. And she said, oh, honey, <laughs> she said, Jared, there's many ways to be Indian as there are Indians. Oh. And I thought, and which was very overwhelming and very validating. And I've thought about that in, in all kinds of ways. And, you know, and when I teach, I teach a lot of kids and I teach both natives and non-natives composition. And I'm really, really clear with them about it. I don't have any stylistic restrictions or any particular expectations. Like you're going to compose like me with this particular technique or whatever. I'm like, no, I am your living encyclopedia. I am your life coach here to answer all the questions that you need to solve anything technical, but it's up to you what you want to do. What my job is to help you be the best artist that you can be with whatever voice that you have, because there are 8 billion people on this planet, which means there are 8 billion different ways to be a person. <laughs> yes. And I'm really grateful that my aunt had told me that in my microcosmos of, of Native America. And so it's the same thing with all people. So uh, I'm just really grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really must have, it felt probably very liberating mm -hmm. to be given that permission. Yep. Yep. On some level, however, you are one of a very small subset of composers mm -hmm. who focus in on this one area. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like the representative? No, no. Oh. I did feel a little bit alone for a while. So for instance, when I started out, the only composers that I was aware of was Denison Wheelock, who was Oneida, and he was the original composition and, and music teacher at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. In fact, his first orchestral work, actually his only orchestral work, is Aboriginal 
original suite was played in Paris and then in Carnegie Hall in 1901. And he was responsible for educating lots of American Indians in the band world. And there, actually, there's a whole tradition of band in Indian country that lots of people don't know about. But there's been a lot of American Indian instrumentalists through boarding schools and different schools. Like there are a lot of band players. All, all kinds of Americans have been have played instruments. So I'm sorry, that's a yeah. total big tangent. But then also uh, Louis Ballard is another yeah. composer who was alive at the same time. And he he was Quapon Cherokee from Oklahoma. And my parents knew him. They were actually at the premiere of his ballet, The Four Moons, that had four of the five American Indian ballerinas from Oklahoma in that. And so my parents were at that premiere a year before I was born with Lewis. And Lewis and I were friends. But that's all I had at the time. But since then, there's actually quite, quite a few American Indian composers and classical instrumentalists populating, which is really, really wonderful. Yes. And so I have a lot of friends now in Indian country that are composing and playing classical music. And I knew that that was going to happen over time. But when I started out, it wasn't the case. And so I felt isolated. That's why I was like wondering, like, what is what I'm doing going to be relevant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it clearly is, you know, which I'm really happy about. But, you know, look, if you if you make any kind of comparison, there's American Indians involved in every single genre of fine art. And one great example is Sterling Harjo doing Reservation Dogs. I'm really proud that Sterling is a friend of mine. And he's his work is really important because he's showing everybody a modern American Indian expressing their identity through a medium that is not Aboriginal to anywhere in the world. That is a brand new art form to all people and all cultures. Well, brand new, relatively new. It's 100 years old. But that's not Aboriginal to anybody's culture. And so he's a really great example of being modern and connected to your heritage at the exact same time. So another really good example is another friend of mine, Joy Harjo, and she is our third time poet laureate for the United States of America. And she expresses her unique identity as a Muscogee. She's also Muscogee from Tulsa. And she is using materials that, again, are not Aboriginal to our culture. First of all, she's writing the language down, which is relatively new. Mm-hmm. It's in books and it's in the English language. And so other American Indians are reading her work in English. I mean, this is all mediums that are not original to our cultures. And so yet we've embraced those as modern tools like everybody else has around the world. And of course, we've got American Indian choreographers and sculptors and painters. I mean, look, here's all that, you yeah, know. And so, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And so when we've been involved for quite some time, and so I'm very, very happy to be a part of this. And classical music is no different. I'm using orchestral instruments the same way that Brent Greenwood is using acrylics and a canvas. Those are materials that we didn't have originally. And yeah, so, sure, of course, sure. you know, Jean Quick to see, she's a Salish artist who uses all kinds of multimedia and stuff. And she uses stuff that's print from her Charcoal News newspaper from her tribe. You know, this is all really modern stuff that people are doing yeah. all the time. And also, one thing that's really cool is the incredible explosion of American Indian fashion. Oh my gosh, this is fantastic. So <laughs> another really good friend of mine is fashion. Margaret Wheeler, and she's a Chickasaw textile designer. And she's like a total mentor to a lot of the young fashion designers. These are total Gen Zers. And some of them are, you're crossing into Gen Alpha actually very soon here in all this artistic expression. But the fashion that's coming out of Indian country right now is stunning. Cool. It, oh, it's, it's so great. And I will say, I'll tell you, during the pandemic, Instagram blew up with visual art. I bought a lot more American Indian art than I'd ever in the past. And I have so many colleagues who were able to embrace that as a medium of income, you know? And mm, so definitely. there's so much American Indian visual art now on Instagram. It's just really, really terrific. I love this so much. It's a really 
good reminder that no matter where you come from or what the history is, there's mm-hmm. this whole world of expression <laughs> available mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. to do the thing you want to do. I was curious mm-hmm. too, you mentioned having people early on who were really encouraging you of you following mm-hmm. this path. And you also mentioned that you had this really innate drive, like that you just mm-hmm. felt passionate about it and it happened yeah. and it was exciting. And maybe those two things together kind of like gave you the impetus to go for it. When it comes to your compositions, when it comes to your process, what's that like? I mean, do you, is there research that goes into it? You've mentioned mm-hmm. to us, like there's, there are times of day that you like to compose. What is the experience like? Well, it's it's a very holistic experience. And so all of those things that you were talking about are all present in what I do. And so I, as far as I know, every artist that I'm aware of has all facets of what they do. And that is, there's lots of research, personal research, external research that we need to do. And then also, you know, inward exploration of what we're hearing, of what we're feeling, all kinds of things, and all, lots of personal decisions about what it is that we want to express, what's important to us as an individual. And so that, that all those larger things drive the details. You know, it's it's like parenting. It's like, you know, you've got your child and you're like, boy, this is awesome. Oh gosh, what do I do? Well, okay. And it's the same thing. And so it's like when I'm creating new work, I'm like, okay, yeah, I really want to do this. What do I do? All right, now. And then it's like instantly, okay, I've got these lists of things. Okay, I want to achieve this. So that means I'm going to have to do this. I want to achieve this. This means I have to do this. And so there's there's all kinds of logistics that go into creating anything. I mean, it's like, if you look at civil engineering, well, you know, somebody starts out with a passion to be like, you know, I really want to create this environment in our town. This, even if it's like highway construction, it's like they want a certain flow to help people do this. This is going to be a better thing. This can be safer. What are all the logistics? How do we plan all this stuff? What are they capable of doing? How do I incorporate this? That's called human creativity all the way around. And it doesn't matter what field you're in. You could be running a daycare center. You can have the exact same issue about what <laughs> your vision and passion is and how am I going to implement all that? Yeah, and, you're, and of course, at the end of the day, we're all working with each other. I mean, this is not an isolated event. I spend a lot of time thinking because I have to focus, but I work with like hundreds of people every single year. And so this is all about relationships that I have with other artists. But every time I'm sitting at the composition table, I'm writing, there's people in the room with me because I'm Mm. writing for them. I'm imagining what is this going to feel like with a flutist? How are they going to, you know, how's this going to physiologically be with their, you know, when they're performing it? I'm in a relationship with people constantly while I'm doing stuff. So there's always this larger vision. There's always also the details. And then and when you're actually creating, I'm flexing back and forth. It's fluid. I'm going back and forth between details, larger vision, somewhere in between this over here, this over there, and eventually comes into focus to a final piece because there's deadlines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Got yes. it, man. It's got to be yes. done. <laughs> So your whole discussion about your creative process got me thinking, I've been reading this book called The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, and he talks about the different phases of creating something. Mm -hmm. So at first you have like the imagining part of the process, and then you have like kind of the doing part of the process, and that's the part that's dependent on deadlines and, Mm -hmm. you know, those not so fun things. Mm -hmm. But when you're in that imagining phase, I'm just curious what you do to spark those ideas. Like, what do you do to 
get your creative juices flowing. Where do you tend to find inspiration or go for inspiration when you need that quiet space away from the piano? You're you're talking to a dad, so there's no time or space. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a mom. (laughs) I no, I say that with great. I mean, I'm so blessed. You know, honestly, I do take walks from time to time. I don't have a lot of time luxury, so I kind of honestly I live kind of in that spiritual world and the real world simultaneously. It's really just kind of all. Teach us how. (laughs) You know, I'll be honest with you. A lot of my inspiration comes uh, from my conversations with. People. So that's not downtime. It's like excited, like yeah. right what we're, you and I, right what we're doing right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. So th- this is just kind of happening constantly. And whenever I get a phone call from somebody who wants to do a commission, I, I will immediately ask them, okay, so where are you? Where are you from? This kind of thing. And immediately just ideas start to flow. And that's why I have to take notes and I have to, you know, you have to shelve it for a little while and come back. But to be honest, I'm just kind of constantly in that mode. It's like all the time. So like, I'm always in touch with God. I'm always in touch with my creativity. I'm always in touch with my son and I'm always in touch with my family and friends and nature and living. And so I just, it's just kind of is that way. And a lot of that is kind of practical too, because again, there's not much time in the day. So I just need to keep all those gates open. And yes, this is the problem is that when ideas come in the car, it's, oh, that's frustrating because- Can't write it down. The phone has voice memos are for. Yeah, it's like I say, I'll take notes or whatever. But a lot of times, I've got my son with me, and I'm talking to him as well. And so I'm just like, grab it, grab it, hold it, hold it, hold it, Jared. And so I'm desperately trying to hang on to ideas because they always come at the worst times. Yeah, it always happens. It's just the way it is. (laughs) All just has to be kind of simultaneous. I think it's so great because most people will resonate with that concept. That looks like even just in my own experience, I have had phases of my life where I have a lot more time to be silent with myself, to meditate, mm. to spend time journaling, to do all these things. In the last, I don't know how many months, I, I have... I just haven't had that space. I haven't had that yeah. space. But I realized, like, I spent over a thousand miles in the car last week, and every drive—I know it was insane. This is—I'm not—I'm never doing it again. Do not recommend. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Not for yeah. gigs, listeners. Not for work. I mean, on a road trip Don't across the this. country, it's great, but like, no, for work, I don't recommend it. Yeah. It's the worst. However, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> I swear, especially the drive at night, like to my destination to go to bed, the stuff that was coming into my head or just, just mm-hmm. entering my being was mm-hmm. only, it could only be coming from a place of openness and awareness and connection mm-hmm. to whatever we consider to be our source. And mm-hmm. I, I was so grateful for it because I was like, oh man, even when I don't have like 45 minutes to just sit in silence every morning... Mm-hmm. Right. This will still come. Like that that mm-hmm. I'm still the vehicle for whatever that thing is that can enter mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm open. You know, if I'm that's a really good point because I mean Mm -hmm. it's still us, right? So I'm not going anywhere here. (laughs) (laughs) So I think a lot of times there's there's fear in that because oh I don't have time I'm going to lose all my ability that's not going to go away. You know you're still you're still who you are and it's uh, same brain. You know and I remind myself of that a lot. It's like when I think about my age or whatever. It's like I'm it's the same brain that I had when I was 20. I'm the same person. I've learned a lot, but I've still you know that that kind of thing. It's like same person. Why wouldn't I, you know? So I think a lot of us have the same fears about that. And honestly, it's really nice to have a group like this and talk about <laughs> how we how we all have like the same issues. And here, when we hear other people's different versions of the same mm-hmm. things, 
-hmm. it's really helpful to us. Yes. Yes. Even if it's not the exact same story, it's the same energy and you just feel in communion with people who are managing the same issues and knowing that if they can do it under their circumstances, I can definitely figure it out under mine. It's it's really nice to be able to talk about those human and especially as adults issues that that we have. We all have them. Oh, so (laughs) I really like to talk about this. Okay. So, you know, there's this issue of like when we meet aliens, and so when yes, we do the meet when, aliens, not if, when. When, when we meet aliens, <laughs> thank you for saying it that way. So there's all the controversy of like, well, how are we going to really communicate with aliens? You know, what's their chemistry going to be? But how are we going to communicate? And of course, you know, scientists are very adamant about, well, it's of course we're going to communicate in science and math because it's all universal and physics and everything like that. So artists have another one's like, oh, well, it's going to be art because art is universal and that's going to be the universal expression. I'm like, nope, it's going to be parenting. That's going to be the universal. <laughs> <laughs> because when we tell a story to each other and they roll their six eyes at the same time we roll our two eyes boom we've communicated we bonded and it's all going to be a, about a story about our teenage kids <laughs> oh my gosh that's <laughs> yes. hilarious i have a four, i have a 14 year old Apparently. right now so oh you do yeah. you're 14 year old. okay you know it, <laughs> I know it. we're in you're it in we're it. in it yeah. man. <laughs> It's hard as artists to, I don't know, allow ourselves that time, especially as parents, you know, Mm -hmm. to allow ourselves that time to sustain our artistic side of ourselves because you could give everything to your kid. Yes. You could give all of your time to your kid and your pets. So it's all about kind of each one of us figuring out when we're our most productive, our most artistic, Mm -hmm. most connected to our muse and trying to work around that time. Agreed. And it changes. It can change weekly. Yes. We we try to to find architecture (laughs) that we can set for as long as humanly possible. And that becomes Mm -hmm. increasingly more difficult. But, you know, so I remember in college, you know, I was the late night composer. I would start at nine o'clock at night and go to midnight and I would go to coffee shops and do a lot of this work externally. And then I would go to pianos and I kind of split it. I had my system in college. I remember, I remember very fondly because I remember the focus time that I had, but you know, it didn't last that long because life's changed. I hear I act as if it had happened for decades or something. <laughs> now, so now what I do is I get up three 30 or four in the morning, depending on the day. Well, that's, and like that's I said, early. I would get a couple of hours in and I can shower. And then I wake my son up at six 30 mm-hmm. for his school. And I know by the time I get back, I will then grab another couple of hours. And if I can get four hours of composing in a day, that's pretty darn good. And if I can get more, that's great. But then of course, there's just so much business to do and things to take care of. And, you know, got a grocery shop and, you know, look for things and do fill out forms for my son for school. I mean, there's lots of real, just real stuff. But when I can get stuff done by nine or 10 in the morning, oh my gosh, I feel really, really good. That's the time when all pistons are firing really, really nicely. I love the fall because it does, the sun doesn't even come up till after he, he's awake. And so mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, I've just conquered the whole day because the sun hasn't <laughs> I have the whole day. So I fake myself out like that. So I like that. I don't like the summer because it comes up at four in the morning. I'm like, no, stop it. Go back down. I got stuff to do. (laughs) Do you ever have moments or days where it isn't coming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do? Oh, absolutely. So what I do is I let myself off the hook immediately. It's like, just stop it. Get something else done. Just go, 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 go. Because I remember talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know, procrastinating means that you are metabolizing. 
your processing. Mm-hmm. If you're not like, you know, okay, procrastinating, that. if you never get the gears going, that's that's one thing. But a lot of times we are really hard on ourselves and we say we're procrastinating, but actually we're processing. And I think if you can be aware of that and allow that to happen, it will you actually will end up saving more time because you're spending less time beating yourself up, which takes time out of your schedule, actually, to sit there and self-criticism. It actually <laughs> yes. takes a lot of time out of your schedule. It's really kind of funny. We're all talking about time as we get older like this. But but, <laughs> but the thing is, is that I've just learned to be like, it's not happening. Just stop. Just stop it, Jared. You're going to get this. It, obviously, you got to take care of these other things for the mental space. So I just allow myself to do that. And sometimes it doesn't feel like there's time to do that. But I mean, what, what can you do? Yes, I appreciate that I, so I, much. I, yeah. You know, if I run into like a real serious problem with time, then what I do is I communicate with other people that it affects. So I'm just like, we. I just got to do it. And I'll tell you, I'm finding this out later in life that the more I do that, the more empathy I get. <laughs> I have so many people that are like, oh, dude, I get it. I, I You know, hey, that's fine. We'll work this out. Okay, yeah. what, what do we need to do? And we usually work it out. I mean, so this year I had a double hernia surgery last fall. And I was thinking, yeah, I'll just get right up. And I'll just triple down. And I mean, Jared... <laughs> So what happened is I, I lost six months. I, well, I lost four months of productivity, right. and yeah. so I honestly had to have a sit down with myself, and I said, "I'm behind. Mm-hmm. It's that simple." And I'm not. I'm just not going to be able to do what I was hoping for, and I need to try to rework our schedules. The first time I did that, like it kind of on mass as a professional move, yeah. that I just had to do because of my circumstance. And everybody was like, "Right, okay, let's work it out. What are we doing?" And I was like, That's... "Oh my gosh, I can't believe this!" And so, what a relief, huh? Yeah. It, that was really beautiful. It was really cool. And of course, you know, honestly, my finances changed because of that, because my financial schedule radically changed. So I had to go, all right, time to tighten the shoestrings, pull up my bootstraps and figure this out. I'm going to be okay. You know, well, those are real things that we all deal with. And so, but what I did is just, I just really practiced a lot of faith and I was just allowed myself to have the time that I needed to. And I just thought, you know, again, my parents were a lot poorer than I am. And it was a lot worse, honestly, for them and my grandparents my great-grandparents. I just reminded myself of that. It's going to be okay. I've got friends and family. I can talk about this. I can figure this out. You can always work it out. That was the attitude that I just had to give myself. And so I allowed myself to completely change deadlines and everything like that. So then I could regroup and boy, did that make a huge difference in my life. And of course, you know, you still end up really busy, but it's just like, it's, it usually kind of comes back. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a great thing to share though. And I think it's really important because we've talked a little bit about the importance of community and the importance mm-hmm. of having people support you having a village mm-hmm. and so the the idea that you can't rely on those people in a time of need in this case it's just putting the phone to the ear and saying hey i can't i can't i can't can't do it i can't yeah um right. and and knowing that the response is not well too bad get it done. the response is like Hey, do what you got to do. You know, like, and how can I help? Like, can I help you? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that that is such a huge, important thing to help us through those moments to get us to the other side where we have the ability to make the space for it and the and the resources mm-hmm. and everything. This is very it's resonating with me very deeply in my own life. Yeah. and I yeah. just feel like it's so important to have both of those pieces. You know, we can't be yeah. self. We can't be hundred percent self reliant. And if if we're in a vacuum and we're struggling, mm-hmm. that's another. There's another direction.
direction that that goes, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree. You know, it's, it's also what I do for anybody who called me. I mean, my gosh, if mm-hmm. somebody calls me and says, Jared, I just want to fade. Well, I, I mean, it's happened all the time. It's like, you know, when I really think about it, when I reflect on it, when I've gotten those phone calls, I'm like, oh my gosh, hey, let's take a moment and breathe. And oh my, yeah, we're going to figure this out. And I, you know, what can I do? Yeah, that's, that's, that's been the response. And so I've learned some really, really neat current life lessons because of that, that, you know, I will absolutely lean into in the future. And then I, you know, some lessons I can teach my son. You know, hey, listen, when there's troubles, you talk to me and you talk to anybody you need to because people are on our side. You know, it's like we, we are in community. We really, really are. And and a lot of times we forget that mm-hmm. because we're hard on ourselves. You know, we have lots of expectations of ourselves. But when we just lean into that, a lot of people, most people come through. Most people do. It's the majority. It really, really is. I'll tell you a story. When the pandemic hit, this was something that um, had occurred to me that was really important. I was in touch with a lot of orchestral musicians. And uh, one really, really good friend of mine um, who's in a particular orchestra, I was talking a lot. And they were like, I was like, well, how's it going? And they were like, because, I mean, you know, our our adjustments had happened within three days. So I remember on Thursday, I'd heard that school went to a half day. The very next day, we got an announcement. School was not meeting. And then on Saturday, we got the announcement that school was closed indefinitely. So so I became a full-time homeschooler mm-hmm. and I was in the middle of all these scheduled performances and commissions and everything. And the immediate response was to get on emails and say, your your invoices are still due. I mean, it was panic mode. And so I was talking to my my colleague and they were like, yeah, it's bad. And I was like, what's going on with the library? And just tell me what's going on with the orchestra's emergency meetings like crazy. What are we going to do? And they were all, the first thing they were talking about was all their invoices that were pending for electricity in the building, all the way to commissions and rentals. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, this is, and cause I kept going to the computer to collect. I just couldn't do it. I'm like, mm-hmm. <sighs> and so I just thought, I know what I'm going to do. So I emailed everybody and I said, you're off the hook. I'm d- I did it preemptively so that they didn't have to like, you know, contact me. I was like, I was on it. I was like, I want to let you know that you are, this is not on your table anymore. Program me in a year, please just keep the music, whatever we need to do. Let's figure something else out. But I just want to wow. let you know right now that this is not on your table anymore. Like I'm out, I'm out of it. And I, I got online to my own account and I was like, all right, you got four months to live. I get four months of money to live on. Okay. So now what are you going to do? <laughs> First of all, I let everybody, it's like I lost, I voluntarily was like lost all my money. <laughs> and so, but the thing is though, is that we're all looking for the same $5 bills. I mean, so mm-hmm. what good was it going to do for me to go, you know, oh, you stole me this money and you're a big institution and you can afford it. But no, that's not the case at all. They're yeah. still paying payroll to orchestral musicians who are now all terrified because they don't know. I don't know how much somebody has only a day left in their account. Some people have a week. I was so fortunate to have four months of bills in my account that I could rely on because then I was like, all right, done. And then that's when I actually gave all my music away for free because I was like, if anybody can just, if I get five performances this year, I can collect some BMI royalties and I'll have something. It'll be more than I ever thought I could have. You know, so I was just like, forget it. I just dropped the whole bag. I was like, you know, just this is not going to work. And nobody in my community can afford this. Mm-hmm. Nobody can mm-hmm. afford this. And so the last thing I'm going to do is step on everybody else's neck. It just didn't make any sense, you know? And so then all the Zooms kicked up and there's a lot of life coaching going on with each other about like, you know, how are we doing this? It was really, really, really beautiful actually. So, but I just said to myself, I was like, I'm going to do this one day at a time. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to solve one problem a day. And by the end of 30 days, I will have 30 problems solved and three months of income still. You know, I was just like looking at all this, like, (laughs) but 30 problems solved, right? So what did that mean? Well, it would mean that I would figure something. I was, something was going to happen out of this. But I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm in gratitude and I'm fortunate and I'm just going to do this. But it was really, really important to make sure that my community knew, hey, we're totally in the same wheelhouse here. This is, 
you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to shake hands and we're going to help each other out. It was really, really important. So and really- I had so many colleagues who were on board with that thinking and, you know, really doing well. And it was the majority of people that were doing that and helping each other as much as possible. It's really, really beautiful. That's so lovely to yeah. hear mm-hmm. because we think of ourselves coming from such a scarcity mindset <laughs> to, to embrace such a sense of abundance mm-hmm. that it's like faith that it will come. We will be able to solve this problem together and that there's enough work out there. It may not be the same work, but if you're able to broaden your horizons a little bit, broaden your sense of what you're willing to, you know, put out there, the mm-hmm. energy you're about you're able to put out there, that it will come back. Yeah. That yeah. you'll be provided for. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful Agreed. thing is that we're looking in your studio there with the piano and the electricity is on. So somehow you made it past those four months, even <laughs> after making that decision. And that's like a testament, right? To trust. Agreed. And it really begins with gratitude. So yeah. when when you really mm-hmm. pull that, when you work the muscle of gratitude, you're immediate, what happens is you, you change a mindset of scarcity to abundance. What you do yeah. is you go, hey, look what I have. Mm-hmm. And look, look, I'm talking to you on this, you know, with this, <laughs> this microphone and this Logitech camera and you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm able to do that. And the fact that I can do that means that I'm, I'm I'm going to be okay. There's something is going to work out all right. If you could look at everything with a sense of gratitude towards, I've got a beautiful cat, you know, <laughs> my beautiful son. Uh-huh. He's healthy. He's eating oatmeal and strawberries every morning. We're good with that. That's really, these are all things to be grateful for. You know, I'm not a person in Libya whose spouse has been killed in a war and I'm sick and my children have the flu. That's a very, very different story with no assistance whatsoever. That's a real thing in the world, right? While we are sitting here in privilege, you know, online and everything. And so just having that, lens of gratitude is really, really critical. And it also allows you to move ahead a lot quicker. It actually saves time. (laughs) It really, really does. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. This has been amazing. It's so great. It's been so fun. Nothing to do with music. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's everything to do with music. That's the world that we live in. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know. It's just refreshing to hear the perspectives for anybody who's working towards some creative endeavor, just the Mm -hmm. level of trust and Mm -hmm. the making it work. I mean, there's just so much here that's been so great. What's what's coming up for you, Jared? Are there any big projects you're working through right now? Any new premieres coming up? Yes. (laughs) Almost everything. I am very, very blessed and very overwhelmed. I'm managing prosperity right now and I'm very grateful for that. So I I will admit I'm very, very tired and I'm also very fortunate, you know, so I'm finishing up my piano and flute duo right now and I'm immediately going into a commission for City Music Cleveland that I have to compose very quickly and efficiently for soprano and orchestra and I will conduct that concert. And then shortly after that, I've got some, well, in the meantime, I've got some great performances in New York City uh, with Cantori, New York, and I've also... uh, Lincoln Center performance and then like Turtle Island String Quartet is touring one of my pieces right now. Cool. And my son is coming out with me to, well, actually he just performed with me when I conducted the Akron Symphony and he's performing with me when I play in Carnegie Hall in March. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be cool. And Link and the New York City Philharmonic is playing one of my works just just before Carnegie Hall, which is really great. So I'll be going out to there. So I've got residencies I'm flying out to. And then also I've got a couple of commissions from the Dover String Quartet. And I'm premiering my new opera next October, which fortunately is finished. (laughs) Um, But that's going to premiere here in Oklahoma City with uh, Canterbury Singers and Canterbury Voices and Oklahoma City Philharmonic. Uh, It's a two-hour opera that's uh, a a concert opera sung entirely in the Chickasaw language. And we have four American Indian opera singers that are playing four of the leads. There's many leads, actually. 
actually in this. And so uh, Caitlin Morton is our Cherokee soprano, who's the lead. She's a mezzo. We have um, Kirsten Kunkel, who's a Muscogee spinto soprano, who plays the grandmother. Uh, Mark Billy, who's Choctaw baritone, plays her father. And then uh, Grant Youngblood is a baritone, Lumbee baritone, uh, who's playing the river that she speaks to at the very end of the first act. And so this is a story about Luxi, which means turtle. And this is about a girl in our past named Luxi. It's a hero story. It's almost like a combination between a hero's journey and an ugly duckling story where she starts out young and very insecure about her abilities and everything and turns out to be the person who entirely transforms our culture. And mm. so it's beautiful. It's a really, really I great story. It. And it's a perfect two act opera story. And I just, I'm really grateful that I, I got to compose this. And so that's premiering next October here in Oklahoma City um, in our language. And I'm really happy about it's that. Wonderful. Really special. grateful. Immediately after that, I'll be premiering a work with the Oklahoma City Philharmonic that will be actually in six different native languages, sung wow. with the chorus and, and soloists. That's, I'm calling that my American Indian Symphony because it's covering many regions of Indian country here in North America. And then I've got, so my son, Hiloha just turned 10 years old and he is, his name Hiloha means uh, thunder in the Chickasaw language mm. and he is quite a kid. First of all, his favorite sport is our traditional stickball sport. The Chickasaws play stickball, which is actually the origins of where, that's where lacrosse came from. Um, Hiloha is an incredible horn player and ballet dancer. And he started horn and ballet four and a half years ago. Wow. So when he was just five years old, he came to me and said he wanted to play an instrument. And I was like, great, you're talking to the right guy. I got, you want to start on piano? He said, nope. He said, and I said, what do you want to play? Horn. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wow. Just, Horn. just he knew. Yeah. He was he was not six and he said that. So we boy, <laughs> we had his problem because you know horns are about I was just gonna say, do they girl. make a horn the size of for five like- and a half year olds? <laughs> French horn this is that is, we're talking about, called, you know, figuring that parent figuring this like, so, so I, I found pocket horns that you could buy in China for 200, okay. $250 a piece. <laughs> They're just B flat trumpets there. So it didn't yeah. work. And so then I found three quarter size F single F horns that were made in Dallas. And so okay. I didn't realize this after well, I was a brass player in, in high school, but they don't make many single Fs anymore. They were really common when I was a kid. So oh. I found a three quarter size single F and that was pretty big on him now, but now he plays on a, on a professional double horn now, but he's been studying horn for for four and a half years. And he's in the Oklahoma Youth Orchestra's program here in Oklahoma City. And he also had just started ballet just that summer. And he studies with the Oklahoma City Ballet here. And he's finally got the role of Fritz in Nutcracker this year. So he's been doing doing Nutcracker in the ballets for for a number of years now. So yeah, he's he's really, really excited about that. But he's uh, very good. (laughs) <laughs> both of them. And he's just doing really, really well. So I I am a very, very proud and busy dad. Aww. And I'm really, really proud of my son. I, I'd say my first job is being his personal manager. <laughs> <laughs> He's really it. busy with all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. And I just, I'm just really, really grateful that he's got that life so great. and uh, just good kid. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's my guy. Aww. Well, now you get to have the role of the nurturing, supportive patron that you were so lucky to have as yes. a child. I had so many great mentors when I was a kid and the gifts that my parents gave me are just immeasurable. Yeah, it's good stuff. People did that for me and their voices are in my mind every single day. The ones that I need, it's right there, right there. My aunt, oh honey, <laughs> when oh, she said honey. that to me, oh, it's like, I just want to cry. Or something. Yes, you know, yeah. and I'm just so fortunate that I had people like that. Gosh, you know, I had my my dad called me one time in, in 1991, I think it was. I was in I was in Cleveland. Jared, I need to talk to you. I'm like, oh boy, what I do? And he said, I just I want to make something really really clear to you. And I said, yeah. I said, he said, you are a Chickasaw man. Yes. <laughs> 
thank you, dad. What's dad, what's going on? He said, well, I just heard this interview about somebody who said that they're part or whatever, this kind of thing. And that this is an issue that lots of people have who are mixed heritage, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And he mm-hmm. said, look, I just want to make sure that you are really, really clear that you are not the son of a Chickasaw father. You are a Chickasaw man. And <laughs> and I said, thank you. I've never forgotten that he said yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and this is really important to me, and it's and and it's far beyond skin color or percentage or anything like that. It has to do with his belief in me, his spirit, my spiritual connection, and I mean, this my father believes in me, you know, and so both my parents believed in me very, very deeply, and so I just I think about these things, mm-hmm. these statements that people make for us from time to time. They're really, really important that we need those mm-hmm. as you know as our ropes, you know, sometimes when we're really struggling, and so I, I think about that with the kids that I teach, my own son, you know, I want to make sure I'm saying things that they understand. It's really important as a teacher that the kids know that you love them. They know it. Boy, they know it. And they will never, ever forget it. Their hearts always remember that. It's really critical that we are always giving that. If we don't say it with words, we're showing it in our actions and our looks and the time and the care and the way we're interacting. It's clear that we're showing them that they that we care very deeply about them. And that just comes in our, in our attitude and our spirit and how, you know, we are with them. So that's really important stuff. Yeah. Well, it's clear that that's the way that you live your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very moving. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jared, for joining us today. This has been so wonderful. <laughs> it's been amazing. <laughs> Just stay here and talk all day. <laughs> I know. Tell us all the stories. I know. I, I could go on for a long time. Uh, that's the, my son will attest to that. He'd be like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> oh boy. Here it comes. Here it goes. <laughs> Are you the dad that stays in the parking lot forever talking to the other people while your son's like, yep. dad? If, if I had a daughter, I'd be one of the Swifty dads. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. My, amazing. If, if Hiloha wanted to go to one of those the parking lot concerts, I'd be right there. Yeah. They're having them in the theaters. Yeah. My daughter, mm-hmm. my younger daughter went. <laughs> Everywhere. I, I'd be I'd be there, right there. Maybe a Swifty dad. Talking to all the other dads. <laughs> so good. <It's> amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jared, the wannabe Swifty dad. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the title of this that episode. That is literally the best sign off we've ever had. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. If you loved this episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks also to our season sponsor, Potter Violins. If you'd like to support the podcast and get access to bonus content, consider joining our Patreon community. You can buy all your musician-centric merch, including shirts, water bottles, koozies, and a variety of other fun items. Our theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara and edited by Emily McMahon. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.